This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Well, when I was young, I read a book that my dad gave me. And the book was called The Millionaire Next Door. I don't know if you've read this book. It's a book on personal finance. And the premise of the book is this, okay? Your next door neighbor, who lives in the same middle class, split level house as you, who drives the same Ford Escort as you, who wears the same Goodwill jeans as you, may in reality be a millionaire. Because more people are millionaires than you would realize, and they're millionaires because they don't live like millionaires. They don't look like millionaires. And maybe you're familiar with the book or this reality, but flip it on its head, because we, we go through life making judgments based on appearances, okay? So we look at a person, maybe their house, maybe their stuff, their kingdom, so to speak, and we try to figure out, try to create a profile of this person. What, what are they like? What's their, like, are they a nice person or are they just an angry, mean person? What's their job? What do they do? The point of the book, the premise, though, is that things are not as they seem. Things are not always as they appear. And in Matthew's gospel to this point, his writing has really illuminated the kingdom of heaven. And all along, you've been asking yourself, well, what's, what's the king of that kingdom like? The kingdom is not like we would expect it. It's not as, as it appears. This king, hmm. Maybe you're like the crowds who have followed Jesus and you've drawn your conclusions from the bits and pieces about who he is and what he's like. And this morning, there's really a fairly radical shift that takes place in Matthew's gospel. Because we've learned a lot about the upside down, or rather the right side up, kingdom of heaven. And now the attention turns to the king of that kingdom. And you would be right to expect that just like his kingdom, he is not as he appears. And my assumption is that all of you at one time or another have really kind of formulated your characterization of Jesus. You've profiled him. You could maybe describe him and what he is like and maybe even possibly point him out in a lineup of other high-profile religious historical figures. And you're not alone. The extras here in Matthew's Gospel have done the same thing. The, the crowd, the blind the men who got healed, the children, even the disciples have done the same thing. And so I, I believe as we begin now examining this king from Matthew 21 and forward, we'll see that his kingdom is not what we would expect. And so also he is not what we would expect. And so we're right, right now, to pause and open our minds and open our eyes 
And let our expectations of Jesus be challenged. Because our text this morning reveals that Jesus is, as we've already sung about, the humble and at the same moment the exalted king. He is both the humble and the exalted king. And you'll see that as you turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 21. And follow along with me, please, as I begin reading in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now this story may be familiar. It's told in each of the four Gospels and it's known as the Triumphal Entry. And we remember it and celebrate it on Palm Sunday every year, which marks the week before Easter, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem awaiting His death and resurrection. And Jesus has announced now three times that He is on His way to Jerusalem to die and be raised. And this is the moment in which he enters Jerusalem, knowing full well what awaits him there, knowing full well that this movement in the story would bring about the greatest pain he had known, knowing full well that this movement of the story was the reason for which he was born. And it is this story here that reveals those two juxtaposed characteristics of the king. He is both humble and exalted. He drives a donkey to work, and yet he owns the whole world as the blessed son of David. He is, uh, well, in a respect, the quintessential millionaire next door. And in our reading of Matthew's gospel thus far, we've seen that Matthew's been highlighting for us, really, on every page, how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, of all that has been written before. And his point is that this is This one is the long-awaited one. This is the true and better prophet, priest, and king that we have been waiting for. And this morning, that fulfillment theme is on full display. So I'll structure our time uh, together, hopefully to highlight that for you as well, that Jesus is Zechariah's long-awaited humble king, and Jesus is David's long-awaited 
exalted king. Let's work through the story together. We'll see those two fulfillments in particular, his humility and his exaltation, shine forth, and it will invite us to respond appropriately. So Jesus is Zechariah's long-awaited humble king. The opening uh, scene here is really is setting the context for where we are and what we're doing. Okay? In his itinerant ministry, Jesus has been walking. He's made his way now from the north in Galilee. He's returning south to Jerusalem. And he has alerted his disciples now three times. That's where they're going. And last week, Jesus and the crowd that followed him intersected two blind men as they came to Jericho, which is just east of Jerusalem. And so now they're approaching Jerusalem from the east, and they enter the Jerusalem metro area. And there, they, they reside now in one of its suburbs, Bethphage. And this town is, is nestled near the Mount of Olives, Olives, which will become an important point, an important place in the remainder of Jesus' earthly life. And it's there in this suburb that Jesus commissions two anonymous, their unnamed disciples, to retrieve for him a donkey and a colt. It's a strange request, but the instructions are maybe even stranger. If anyone says anything to you, this is verse 3, if anyone says anything to you, say to him, the Lord needs them, and he'll send them at once. Okay, we're asking questions about the king here, okay? Was he a wizard? Was he uh, lucky? Was he a thief? Where are these, whose donkeys are these? Some of those maybe are more likely than others, but it seems to me that what Jesus had done, unbeknownst to the disciples, is made a prior arrangement for these donkeys. That in a sense, a password had been established with the donkey's owners, that the Lord needs them, well, that's Jesus, and so that will mobilize this owner to free the donkeys for the Lord's service. But either way, these disciples were to come back to Jesus with the donkey and its colt. That request also is pretty specific. <laughs> Maybe after all the walking, Jesus was really finally tired. Maybe there's some rocks just outside of Jericho and, and we sprained an ankle and needed a donkey. Why does he ask for these two donkeys? Look at verse 4 for the answer. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then you look at, it says, this was, took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, and then you look right before the quotation mark, there's a little tiny letter in my Bible, and it says, if you follow the footnote, cited from Zechariah 9.9. So just a note about how Matthew uses quotations. When he uses quotations, he is importing the, all of the context that surrounds this original writing into his reader's now experience. He's a master of the Old Testament. He's a master of language and literature. And so uh, when he is writing, he's assuming that these, his Jewish audience are going to pick up on the fullness of what he is bringing into the passage. And so I want to read for you what Zechariah 9.9 says in its original form. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Now, we're right to be keyed into the donkeys, okay? That's kind of the point right here. In, in Mark, in Luke, in John, there's one donkey. But in Matthew's account, there's two donkeys. There's a donkey and it's colt. Why do we care that there are two? Why does Matthew care that there are two? The answer is that Zechariah has two. Now, you can only humanly ride one donkey at a time, so the story will proceed just as normal if there's only one. But for Matthew to highlight Zechariah's fulfillment, there must be two donkeys that are presented to Jesus. But the donkeys aren't the point of quoting Zechariah here. Okay, in this case, when he quotes Zechariah, and you saw it a moment ago, in fact, if you want to turn back, it's only about 12 pages back in your Bible. Those familiar with Zechariah's writing would notice that he skipped a line in his citation. And that skipping of the line is the point. Because the line he skips is that this, this king that is coming, this humble king, he is the righteous one who has salvation. The long-awaited humble king is the long-awaited savior king. And what has he come to save his people from is the question. It's the question Zechariah raises, and if you continue reading Zechariah 9, if you turn back there like I suggested, and you continue reading, you can't, get, you can't help but get the sense that this salvation will primarily be a political salvation. The promise is that this humble king will rule to the ends of the earth, a real kingdom. Even promising that these sons of Zion, Israel, would be raised up as a sword against the sons of Greece, Israel's enemy. And if you read it that way, as a political victory of this humble king, then the donkeys are a really peculiar twist. Because no movie ever shows the king riding in to lead his people in triumph on a donkey. Never. You have to have a problem with the donkey. The donkey choice makes no sense. If you're expecting a political victory, a deliverance even now from the hand of uh, the oppressive Rome, then you are expecting a white horse. But instead of a beast of power or a beast of magnificence, Jesus rides a beast of burden. It's not a Ford Raptor. It's not a tank. It's not even have a V8. It's a little courier van. The same van that delivered your bagels to the, to the cafe this morning. Nothing to look at, nothing to marvel at, nothing to rally around. But there's a couple very real pertinent applications for us to consider even right here. The humble king that brings salvation will not save you by political power. I don't know what you think about politics, but I'll tell you what, when you tell people you're a Christian, they can guess what you think about politics. And hunger for a political power, for representation in Washington, is a big black stain on the church. 
If that was the means by which God was going to fulfill His promise to His people, then it would be a worthy stain to bear. But it is antithetical to the promise that God has made to His people. The King who will reign over the world in peace is the King who parades on a donkey. So when you hear these words, your hope for your guy to make it in Washington, that, that maybe now the church will swell and grow and thrive. Now those are fine things to seek, but they are not ultimate. That hope needs to be replaced, wrapped up entirely in this donkey-riding king. He does not come clamoring for power. He comes giving it up. But more than that, the humility that has characterized the kingdom of heaven to date in Matthew's writing, looking at the kingdom of heaven, okay? It's as though we're looking at our neighbor's kingdom, our neighbor's house, our neighbor's car, and the children get it, and the rich don't get it. The fishermen get it, but the religious elite, they don't get it. The blind men get it. The healthy men, they don't get it. And when you open that neighbor's garage and you, you oddly shouldn't be surprised to see the courier van there because all along the kingdom of heaven has been supplanted by the humble, the poor in spirit, the meek. Of course this king would ride a donkey. So when we say that humility or poorness of spirit or meekness are the way of life in the kingdom of heaven, we should expect to find the one on the throne be the perfect expression of those things himself. Everything that the Beatitudes suggest as the new value system, the new way of being in this kingdom, Jesus personifies. And so his humility is not an anomaly. It is the norm. And it ought to be the central attribute then for everyone who follows this king. So we consider his humility and grow like him. Well, the disciples, they do exactly as they're told. And they go find this donkey and it's tied and they find another donkey. And they bring them back and they start putting their cloaks on the backs of these donkeys as a saddle of sorts. And it says that Jesus sat on them. And if you're just reading it, it's very difficult to understand what the them is. Jesus sat on them two donkeys. It just doesn't really, it's not going to work. The way that the grammar works is that to find the antecedent of a pronoun, you're going to look at the noun that's closest to it, which is cloaks. Jesus sat on the cloaks on the back of the colt as he rode into Jerusalem. I could picture many more entertaining versions of the story in which he is on two animals at the same time, but that's not what's happening here. But I want to pause here for just a moment, okay, before we move to the triumph of his entry, because you need, you maybe don't know it, you need Jesus to be a humble king. Not only because he is the right one, the one that the scriptures have foretold, but because if he isn't humble, he cannot save you. Maybe that's the wrong verb. If he isn't humble, he would not save you. We have all sinned against God. The penalty for sin is death. The means by which sin is paid for is through death. And there is no reason for anyone, let alone God Himself, to save you apart from divine humility motivated by unthinkable love. 
It is his humility that brings him to earth, that allows him to set aside his rights as God to become, be born as a man. It is his humility that brings him to serve. It's his humility that usurps the thrones of earth. It's his humility that brings him to the cross. And this is, this humility of our king is what makes Christianity different than every other religion in the world. This is what makes the kingdom of heaven distinct from every other kingdom of earth. Instead of you mustering up your strength to try harder, to do better, to get yourself up to a magnificent God, God humbles himself and comes to you. And all the way forward now in this kingdom is a deep peace, knowing that because of that, Nothing can threaten your security as one whom God has set his affection on. So now as you follow this humble king, you're free to live as you really are, not thinking of yourself higher than you ought in pride and arrogance, not thinking of yourself lower than you ought in despair and despondency, but simply thinking of yourself less. And in that manner, you imitate the way of your king. Another reality of this humble king is that his humility precedes his exaltation. Okay? It, it does it in this sense right here. He is riding a donkey. And then the crowd is going to cheer Hosanna. Okay? In his life, Philippians 2 really describes this humility. He humbled himself, was born in the likeness of man to die Therefore, God has exalted him to the name above every other name. So it's true in the immediate sense. It's true in the, in the grand sense that his humility precedes his exaltation. It is not at odds with his exaltation. It is actually the means and the path by which he is exalted. He is Zechariah's humble king. And at the same time, he is David's exalted king. Now, I say that he's David's exalted king really for reasons that aren't obvious here in the text, but reasons that Matthew's audience would have perceived by the peculiarity of a king riding a donkey. He's identified by the crowds as the son of David, and they cry out the words of the Psalms as he arrives. But more than that, David or Jesus is reenacting an episode of David's life. In 2 Samuel, uh, David's son Absalom has led a mutiny against his king, the father, and has captured the throne in Jerusalem and basically kicks David out of Israel. David leaves to the east, to the Mount of Olives, but it gets better. While David is out east, he meets a guy named Ziba. And Ziba brings King David donkeys. And when Absalom is killed, presumably David rides these donkeys back to Jerusalem as the true and rightful king. Now, if you're going to do Bible charades, okay, that was a game that I grew up playing as a pastor's kid. Bible charades. If you're going to do Bible charades and you're going to pick a scene from David's life that you're going to act out, I guarantee you that's not the one you act out. It has much more to do with the really tall guy uh, sewing some slings, 
or a sling and some stones, and a big sword, right? That's the story you act out if you're going to act out David's life. No, Jesus is identifying here with David at the lowest of the lows where he is exiled by his own son. It says his head is covered, he's bereft, and then he's not returning back to his kingdom on his horse, but on Ziba's donkey. And what you see is that this is a sign for us that the one riding the donkey back into town is the true and rightful king. And the great crowd with him recognizes him as such. It says in verse 8 then, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. The others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. What's up with the branches and the clothes on the road? It's another picture of fulfillment. In 2 Kings 9, Jehu is anointed as king in Israel, and immediately it says, every man took his cloak and laid it on the bare steps before him as he took the throne. This is the red carpet. We're going to makeshift red carpet. We recognize he's the king. He's on a donkey. He's on a cobbled street in the dust. Put something down in front of him. Pave his way. Now pay close attention here then to what the crowd with Jesus is shouting. Look at verse 9. The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. It's the first and repeated word of their cry. Hosanna. A really nice churchy word. It's a Hebrew word, which means save, we pray. Save us. And you might have missed it, but we've already read that word at least twice this morning. Andrew, in his prayer, read Isaiah 25. And the psalm, which Messiah read a few moments ago, is a song uh, that would have been sung by the people as a part of their Passover celebration which is timely in the context of Matthew. And the people there sing, save us. And also they sing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when they sing this in the Old Testament, I I can't imagine that they would have had an eye to what it would have looked like when their king rode in on a donkey. The one coming in the name of the Lord came on a donkey. And their cries of Hosanna reach him. But here they are, exalting him. Exalting the one who precisely is their solution to their need. Now it also seems to be not a coincidence that they use the same title that the blind men used of Jesus last week. They call him the son of David. You remember that the blind men cried out over the crowd, Have mercy on us, son of David. And it seems that the, that the same crowd who just shushed them, keep it down, has now seen what Jesus has done. They saw his compassion. They saw him heal these men. And they've adopted this language now themselves. They recognize him finally to be the long-awaited son of David, the one God promised would reign on David's throne forever and ever and rule in perfect righteousness and justice. Hosanna, save us to the son of David, the long-awaited king. Yes, even Hosanna in the highest. Here it is, that even God, the Most High Himself, is the source of their salvation. Now, I mentioned that we need Jesus to be a humble king. 
We need that. Our salvation depends on that. We also need him to be an exalted king. You see, a God who bends to enter humanity and rides donkeys and such is great. And it makes a great story and a great thing to celebrate a week before Easter. But sympathy is not the only reason that Jesus has come. Yes, he gets us. Yes, he looks like us. Yes, he rides a donkey instead of a white horse. But he's not as he seems. He's a good teacher. Yes. But he's not as he seems. He's the founder of a great world religion. Yes. But he is not as he seems. In order for his humility to be of any value to our salvation, it must be validated by his exaltation. If he is merely humble, then he dies, and our prayers for help and salvation die with him. But because this humble one is also the exalted one, that is why our cry for help falls on ears of power and compassion. It is his exaltation that gives us confidence. And it appears that the awareness of his own exaltation also gave him confidence too. Jesus seems to have absolute certainty, absolute confidence as he enters the city. No longer is he telling the crowds to be quiet because his time hasn't come. The donkey wasn't just something that was convenient. He has made arrangements for this entry to take place in this exact manner, in this exact time, in this exact location. He knows who he is, and he knows where he's going. And yet normally, in our human experience, that kind of confidence produces a pride in us or an arrogance in us, a self-confidence, you would say. Yet in this demonstration, Jesus' confidence frees him to be humble. And I want to suggest to you, church, Your confidence that Jesus is the exalted king, that Jesus wins, that confidence ought to produce in us a deep humility that can free itself from the grasp of power. It should free us instead to give it away. Well, the crowd here, okay, gets Jesus. They see him as he is, and he's not as he seems. He's the long-awaited humble king of Zechariah, and he's the long-awaited, exalted king of David. But this crowd is not the only crowd in the story. We're witnessing right here a Wild West showdown. And the crowd surrounding the donkey rider is approaching the city with all of its firepower. Look at verse 10. When he entered Jerusalem... The whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? Now that word puts it mildly. The word translated stirred up is the the word we get our English word seismic from. It is as though there is an earthquake or an apocalyptic upheaval in the city. It is an uproar. And with this, the stage for all that happens next is set. What happens after this moment is the shootout of history. The battle lines between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of earth are drawn. The crowd of Jesus clashes full steam ahead into the crowd of Jerusalem. It's about to go down. About to go down. But wait, this king is on a donkey? 
Now, you would think, if you lived in Jesus' day, you would think that pretty much everyone in this day knew about Jesus. What are they? Who is this? But imagine how perplexing the scene would be that would cause you to ask again, who is he? A, a giant crowd surrounding and paving the way with clothes and, and branches for a man riding a donkey. Who is this? You can almost hear the disdain or the, the demeaning tone in their voice. This guy's a nobody. This guy's a rabble-rouser. He has no prominence, no preeminence. He's not, not even have a horse. What's he going to do? Who is he? And the crowd answers them in verse 11. Look at what they say. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And they took that question literally and answered literally. They accidentally pegged Jesus as the one that the city of Jerusalem has been waiting for, but simply cannot recognize as the prophet that Moses foretold in Deuteronomy 18 when he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. They've been waiting for him. They've been looking for him. But he's not as he seems. Now, these allusions to the Old Testament are so thorough and so rich here in Matthew's description of Jesus. He might look like some lower-class uh, suburbanite, but in reality, he possesses all riches. He might ride a donkey, but in reality, he commands the host of heaven. And that's the juxtaposition. That's the tension that we're supposed to feel in this story. And here's the point. The crowd with Jesus gets him. And the city does not. The crowd who is with him gets him. They see him who he is, for who he is. And the city does not. The crowd, therefore, crowns him. They exalt him for who he really is. And the city, as we will see in upcoming weeks, crucifies him. The kingdom of heaven is not as it appears. The king of heaven is not as he appears. And the question then is this. Will you crown Jesus, crying out Hosanna to the son of David, the long-awaited one who brings salvation? Or will you, by your rejection of him or ambivalence toward him, crucify him? Because this is who he is. He's humble and gentle, rides on a donkey. He comes leading a subversive kingdom that ushers in a new and full way of being. But by all appearances, it's entirely upside down. Are you blind enough to see him? Are you helpless enough to need him? Are you foolish enough to bet on him? Are you poor enough to follow him? Because if you do, you have found a treasure of infinite worth. You've found the prize of all creation. Worthy of giving your life for. Now, last week I encouraged you to cry out with the blind men. Lord have mercy, son of David. This week I encourage you to cry out with the crowds. Hosanna to the son of David. 
save us. Acknowledging that Jesus is the one who comes in the name of the Lord to do for you what you could never do for yourself. He will redeem you from your rebellion against your maker. He will revive your purpose and power in life. And he will reward you, satisfying you in this life and the life to come. And it is certain because he is both the humble and the exalted king. Would you join me as we pray that we would see him for who he is and live and respond appropriately? Please join me. Jesus, you are the most excellent, most beautiful, most praiseworthy, the high and exalted one, the champion of all creation. And here we sit. Would you awaken us to your majesty that we might crown you and enthrone you in our lives. Be for us the long-awaited Savior of our souls that we might Follow you wherever we go. And Lord, do not tarry to make your majesty known in its fullness, that every knee would bow to the true and rightful King. We worship you now. Amen. Would you please stand beholding him and exalting him now as we sing. The humble king has come to earth from throne on high to lowly birth. His glory reigns. The spotless lamb has washed away our fatal sin with saving grace. His glory reigns. The man of sorrows crucified, for love he bleeds and love he dies. His glory reigns. Christ the King is Lord. Crown Him seated on His throne. Hail Him. The resurrected King of kings, enthroned on high in majesty. His glory reigns. Behold, the gracious Lord of light has opened ears and poured out sight. His glory reigns. Christ the King is Lord. Crown Him, see.